This reading is taken from Whispers from Eternity, Paramahansa Yogananda's book of Answered Prayers. I may lose everything and roam about in darkness, but, O oh, Divine Mother, see that the tiny taper of my remembrance for Thee be not extinguished by the gusts of disbelief. I loved many things, only to find that my true craving was for Thee alone. Come to me now, be with me always. The parable of the prodigal son, of course, is the story of each one of us. It may be that it doesn't apply so much to some people in this lifetime, but certainly it's applied to everyone at some point in some lifetime. And we all are at differing degrees along the spectrum of what's really happening in that allegorical story for us. Some of us may be steeped in delusion more and some not so. But I was reminded of this news headline that apparently was true that said, lawyers say, client not that guilty. (laughs) (laughs) Which unfortunately I think applies to most people these days when you read any headlines. But but indeed, some of us are not that guilty. (laughs) But we carry with us the, the momentum of the choices that we've taken previously to this point. Again, whether in this lifetime or perhaps in other lifetimes. But we've developed a momentum from essentially that karma. And it's moved us away from our true home in God. But the challenge that happens with that momentum is that we readily at some point start to identify that we are the shortcomings, that we are indeed guilty, that we we judge ourselves to be that. But really what's happening is that we've just taken on a covering. So we may have these seeming realities of whatever karma we have indulged in and taken on. But even then, that isn't really who we are. I remember when I was 20 years old and I was hitchhiking through Europe, that at one point, and I was traveling alone, but at one point uh, in the youth hostel in Brussels, Belgium, uh, I connected up with a few other Canadians. Uh, they saw the Canadian maple leaf flag on my backpack. And, but the other thing that they saw was that... Um, that I, it was a large dormitory setting, but I would meditate twice a day on my bed, and, and they saw that too. And they explained that they had just started meditating a few months before as well. So we had this attraction, and they were just buying a, um, a Volkswagen van to travel around. They were taking uh, the trains, the rail, through Europe and decided they didn't want to do that further, and so they pooled their resources and bought this van. And they were going in the same direction as I was, and that was up towards northern Germany. And I was going to Denmark, and they were going to wind their way down through uh, Germany. But uh, the van was set up with bedding. It was kind of a custom van. And so the three of them were able to sleep lengthwise, you know, with their heads at the back of the van and their feet forward. And so they gave me the position that was juxtaposition to them. Well, there were things on the other side of the van, and there was the door. So 
I didn't have a whole lot of space, and so I had to sleep with my knees bent, my knees curled all the time. And, you know, you, you adjust and you think, that's fine, you know. And after a week, we, um, after traveling together, then they departed, and they left me off at a youth hostel in Flensburg, northern Germany. And that first night, being able to stretch my legs out, I mean, it was remarkable. It was like, this is a touch of heaven, muscles. <laughs> I mean, you think little things like that aren't that significant, but they are. They, you just realize the difference by the contrast. And it's like that with our soul and the expiration that we have in all our lifetimes that takes us away from the soul union with the divine, that we're encumbered. We're having to sleep with our knees bent all the time, uh, metaphorically, that, you know, we're, and we get used to that. You know, we get used to the encumbrances that are there. We're, we get adjusted to the things that aren't us. And that's why it's so easy to say, this is who I am. You know, I'm not worthy, or I always do this, or I don't do that. They're just things that we've added onto ourselves. And what this reading is saying with the parable of the prodigal son is, no, the divine is always welcoming us to our true self in the divine. It isn't really paying attention to that we're identifying with the lesser self that we tend to walk around with. And that's a challenging thing for us, even knowing that God is that sweet all the time and that willing. You've probably felt this, you know, when a friend um, is trying to be supportive and kind to you when you're in a mood, and sometimes you just, none of us do this, but sometimes (laughs) that people will bite back or at least bark back. You know what that feeling's like? That don't bug me, you know? It's like we're, we're caught in whatever is happening for us. And we push away even the good intentions and the good energy of others. And it's like that with the divine. We, we just get caught, our, our lenses of our vision, our, our whole understanding gets filtered in a peculiar way. And it's that karma that we've set in motion that's filtering that. And we get lost. We really identify. If you read the full story of the parable of the prodigal son, You know, he's there wasting his money when he leaves with his inheritance from his father. He soon spends all that wealth. And then uh, there's a famine in the land, and he has no food. So he, he works for a farmer to feed the swine. And his desire is to, to even eat those pods that he's feeding the swine, and yet nobody is giving him that. So it's the epitome of just being dragged down by one's karma, of really saying, this is who I am. But then his thought is not to return as the son of the wealthy father, but as the servant. It's an interesting part of this story that sometimes we don't pay attention to in terms of what that part means for us. Because really what it is, it's saying, when we realize as Shankya philosophy tells us, that this world isn't giving us the fulfillment we seek, then what we need to do is, like this prodigal son, offering ourselves to that which is possible from our perspective moving forward. So even just willing to be the servant 
of his father. Means that it's engaging and offering that energy, that willingness to say, I will do my part as is necessary. (coughs) And what does God do? Represented by the father. He completely embraces that lost son now that he's found again. There's no hesitation on the father's part. There's no hesitation on God's part to embrace us. It is in that offering, in that willingness, that we let go of the identification of our shortcomings. It isn't as if we should say we don't have shortcomings. And this is, you know, the understanding from the Eastern philosophy. It's not an either-or situation. We do have shortcomings. The point is not to identify that we are those shortcomings. You know that first chant that we chanted this morning, or during the service part, Lord, when in darkness, we have to have the willingness through our will to shift what's happening. But along with our devotion, the sweetness of that chant, as it offers us, is the way that we connect our whole being in a meaningful tangible way that really works. Because it has to come down to what is it that works for us to come to our fulfillment? What is it really will give us the steps along the way that allow us to be who we really are in that divine? You know, it's this other news headline that I read said, lack of brains hinders research. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> well, you can take that both ways, of course. You know, though we don't have the brains to uh, to use in the laboratory to do the research, but also <laughs> the other part of that. Um, but it's the lack of our willingness and the lack of our devotion that hinders our development, that hinders our experiment into the experience of our oneness in God. And when we can just shift that around and really say, what is it that I can do? And so the Bhagavad Gita gives us some clarity as to what that is that we can do. It first says that to have that development of deepening calmness, that we really know that our true center doesn't have to fluctuate. The world will continue to go up and down. The waves of distortion will happen because that's the nature of creation as dual, in duality. We're not going to be able to adjust that completely. I mean, you know that in your own life, that if you live in a city, I mean, every city I've visited lately, people say, this is the worst traffic in the country. (laughs) And it is, because everyone's on the same level. They're all worse. But it it isn't as if uh, gridlock and traffic necessarily changes because you meditate. Although there is research (laughs) that says that um, whatever it is, the percentage of 1% in a, an area does create a very real impact on the, the surrounding environment, and including traffic. So um, 
make sure you do meditate. <laughs> Not for that reason. But, but gridlock will still be there. Does that mean you aren't successful in your own experience of going within and touching God? Of course not. For us to evaluate and to equate that things have to happen in the outer world is deeply problematic. Because the world doesn't go along with what you want even if you have really good karma. It just isn't how it works. And to assume that is going to produce even more tension and more karma. What we need to do is simply say, I am going to offer myself completely. I'm going to open up to that deepening calmness and live more in that. And let that be an instrument for the divine to be in the world. But it's the divine that's going to really let things happen. We don't know what the karma is, even of ourselves, let alone other people or um, in group situations. We just don't know. We don't know if a test is really what's meant to happen, where we think, gosh, let's pray so this test isn't there for that person. That test may be their lifeline of spiritual awakening. What we want to do is always open up to what's real in terms of the experience of the divine being able to flow more strongly, more completely. So having that deepening calmness always as our truth of how we live our lives and taking the steps where that becomes more and more real. And we can do that, of course, in meditation. That's the jewel that we polish to allow that experience to be at its core. But we can also practice calmness in our outer life. We don't have to just assume it will happen because we meditate. We can determine and put into action that when things happen in our lives, we step back and open up to what is that centeredness even in the midst of chaos. As Master Yogananda said, that we should remain unshaken amidst the crash of breaking worlds. Well, we can endeavor and then we can experience that by moving in that direction. Not waiting for calmness to happen when it's chaos out there. But we invigorate it as the experience that touches the world around us. Because as Yogananda said, that we should be calmly active and actively calm. So the more we train ourselves, that we bring into practice being calmly active from being actively calm in meditation, then that becomes our norm. That's our normal response. You know, it's interesting that uh, in some of the studies they've done on meditation where they've taken uh, a group of meditators that have been recent to the experience of meditation, perhaps within six months, and then a group um, that hadn't been exposed or taught how to meditate. And they subjected them to stress. I think what they did was they had them in a nice, quiet, softly lit room and came up behind them with a paper bag blown up and went... <laughs> now, if I would just say that real loudly your body would react. Um, That's how potent those things are that um, we can't really control necessarily. And then they graphed the response. They had them all hooked up to sensors so they could relate to their their body in terms of cardiovascular rate, respiratory rate, uh, the galvanic skin temperature and all that, all these things. 
And they found that the non-meditators do spike when they graph them to a high level of stress. And then what was interesting with the meditators, pretty much they came close to the same spike. Interesting, isn't it? The difference was at that point that the meditators came down almost immediately to equilibrium. And the non-meditators were off that graph. And it's really that portion of it that creates the disturbance in us. Because we are going to have intense situations likely to happen in our lives outwardly. So we may not be able to adjust that experience. We can adjust the experience that happens from that. And that's that deepening calmness. It's very real. There's no hesitation to doubt. There's no doubt here that you can have that calmness. We know it spiritually, and we know it scientifically from the medical world. But we need to endeavor to bring that into greater focus. We need to bring calmness into a living experience from the depth of calmness we have in meditation. And that requires us really saying, I'm a part of this experience, moving towards a deepening calmness. And then the Bhagavad Gita says that we uh, need to control the ego-active tendencies. This is rajas, the um, active part of the ego. Because it is the ego that draws us into the whirlpools that it's not only just action, but it's action that gets us caught in the whirlpools that become magnetic, that draw us into, again, identifying we are these actions, we are these effects, we are these experiences. But if we can shift to the truth, the experience, that these things are happening through us, then again, we're controlling what's happening with the energy flow. Think of energization exercises. The idea that energy isn't under our control is refuted by the experience we have in energization. We can really be in that flow and we can direct the energy. Tense with will, relax and feel. And both are necessary, not only to the energization exercises, but to overcoming, controlling the ego-active tendencies. We need to bring a greater energy into flow so that it supersedes whatever energy is trapping us in those whirlpools. And then once we've got the energy happening, then we relax to the center of that experience beyond that duality. We become the experience itself. Um, Some of you are aware of uh, A.A. Millen's book on Christopher and Winnie the Pooh. Just to let you know, Winnie the Pooh is named after uh, Winnipeg, Manitoba, where I grew up. <laughs> you can look up, you can Google the story, it's kind of intriguing. Um, but there is one of the stories in the Pooh books that is called Pooh Sticks. So some of you may not be aware of it, so I'll just briefly explain it and you can go play it. Um, but it's basically the characters, Christopher and Pooh and Tigger and some of the others, they go to a bridge and the river's flowing underneath it and they have sticks. And they toss the stick over one side of the bridge and then they run to the other and see whose stick came first. So that's poo sticks. So Parvi and I have played this a number of times (laughs) on the north fork of the Uber River. (laughs) There's a... um, 
there's a little spot that uh, has a campground, and then there's a footbridge quite high over the Yuba River, and it is ideal for playing poo sticks. So uh, we did it one time when it was in the spring, and you know what happens is with the snow melt, there's a real powerful amount of water coming down from the Sierra Mountains as the snow melts. And uh, Pardee was winning pretty consistently. So I got a bigger stick, <laughs> thinking that it would have more potential of getting across first for once. But, um, but what happened was, is that I actually remember who got over first, but as soon as it got on the other side of the bridge, it got caught in an eddy, a whirlpool, a vortex, a vritti. <laughs> and it just went around and around and around. Now the surge was pretty strong, but even with that, it just caught off in a little side part there. And then I thought, you know, Pardee's stick is going to be in Sacramento. <laughs> And I'm still going to have my stick <laughs> going around. But then, the, as what happens in the springtime is that sometimes there's just surges of more snow melt, and suddenly this more voluminous amount of water came through, and it caught that eddy and caught my stick and rushed it down towards uh, further on. And that's really what we're talking about. We're we're engaging in being ourselves more open as channels. And so that whirlpool of the ego activation uh, doesn't have its own power in the same way anymore. It still has power. But when we offer ourselves into that flow, then it overcomes that, that, that strangulation of the energy, in a sense, that keeps it just bound in that, in that little vortex. And then the third point from the Bhagavad Gita is that we... Uh, release the ego desires, our desires. That we're no longer thinking, what do I need in my life? And we shift that into, what can I offer in my life? And it's very real, and it's very different than the tendency to say, but I need this. This is important to me. Even in meditation, when we, when we feel, I really want you, God, that's a good soul cry, and it's, it's important to let that be there. But let it then transit to move into, I offer myself completely, and not worry what else happens. That's up to God. But if we can give all that we are in that offering, in meditation, but as much as we can throughout each day, just hearken back to, here I am, I'm yours. I offer myself completely. Let that happen. And that is when the parable of the prodigal son is so obvious. That then God as the Father is so welcoming, so ready to embrace us, and not worrying about our karma, and what's dragging behind us. But what is it that we're offering? What is it that we're giving of ourselves completely? So let's take a moment and feel that offering. 